Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. This is something like the 180th podcast we've done over the last four years. It's quite an incredible amount and we haven't run out of things to talk about yet, have we, Thea Lenarducci? I think as long as the paper keeps coming out every week, we'll be okay. Yeah, that's probably right. And we haven't even run out of literary pets although it's we've sort of we've digressed into other we're in all sorts of weird we're in all sorts of weird (laughs) places now yeah but they're all they all give joy in their own way are you ready for some more yes christopher Patton gets in touch from jakarta to confess that his dog is called jacko after the bass player jacko pistorius but the two of them go together so christopher and jacko go together and on the street, they find some street cats, which he has dubbed the Baker Street Irregulars, after the boys who help Sherlock Holmes. And his neighbours have translated the word irregular as Lascar in Bahasa, Indonesia, which means paramilitary troops. Maybe, <laughs> maybe these street cats are tougher than we think, he says. So that's good. I, I, you know, Sherlock Holmes, I've, I'm, I'm, he had me at Sherlock Holmes, really. Um, Neville Shack recalls a lithe Afghan hound of his childhood called Zorba. And his favourite pastime was stretching out at night in the garden and staring hypnotised at the stars as if the celestial expanses above Kilburn were actually over Kandahar, a romantic companion. Uh, another literary one, Chris Stewart, friend of the podcast, emails saying, This morning I was reading Hermione Lee's wonderful biography of Penelope Fitzgerald, and Lee writes that Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald's American publisher, Chris Cardiff, had named his cat Charlotte Mew after reading Fitzgerald's biography of the poet. And then he says, apparently this is a subject with a long tail. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Well done. That's good. I I like that. But anyway, Chris, we have an essay on Charlotte Mew coming out in the next couple of weeks. So there you go. Um, Bonnie Mahalka, who calls herself a loyal subscriber, which is my favourite type of subscriber, says this. My contribution to the literary pets part of the weekly podcast is the family cat I grew up with, Ari. When I was a little girl, I suppose Ari was so named because he could jump high in the air and land elegantly on a perch. Only later did I learn his full name was Aristophanes, which my mother picked out because he had a fondness for birds. We've got a bit of a classical the- feel in our podcast today. That's, that's a good one, isn't it? Aristophanes the cat. Very good. Uh, a couple more. One more. One more. One more. 
Uh, Paul Slade, who offers a three-pronged story. Back in the 70s, when I was a teenage music fan, one of my favourite writers was the enemy's Charles Shah Murray, who owned two cats called Rhythm and Blues, which is fine. Fifteen years later, I acquired two cats of my own, and I remember this, and suggested naming them Fear and Loathing in tribute to Hunter S. Thompson. This was vetoed by another member of the household who balked at the prospect of standing at the back door shouting, Fear, come in for your tea. Which is a fair point, because when I talked about calling our cat Boo, I, we, we talked about various names. I think the shouting out is a factor in all of this, isn't it? In the end, we compromised and called them Calvin and Hobbes after Bill Waterson's masterful comic strip. Waterson, of course, chose these names as what he called an inside joke for political science majors. Uh, Calvin and Hobbes, good literary name. P.S. Calvin was later renamed Schrodinger, but that's another story. Um, we have an email from David Streitfeld as well. He wrote to ask, um, since you've gone from literary pets to literary kids, could literary spouses or partners be, be far behind, he asks. Obviously, one doesn't name a partner, no. but perhaps appeal, the appeal is increased when you meet someone who instantly evokes favourable literary connotations. My wife has the name Fuang, he says, as the only female character, you can't really call her a heroine, of one of the best novels of one of the best English writers, of the 20th century, that being The Quiet American by Graham Greene, of course, a name of such beauty that the author called it out in the book's dedication. So ah. any any partners with, with literary names might be included as well. So pets, okay. kids and partners. I feel this could only expand, yeah, literary resonance in life <laughs> generally. Um, uh, I'm always happy, yeah, so pets, children, partners, um, and then your book recommendations, food. Someone else uh, um, tweeted to say, He's become so brainwashed by this podcast that he saw a reference to Hawaiian pizza somewhere and immediately thought of us. So if we've done nothing else over 180 <laughs> episodes, we have uh, we have done something to the semiotics of Hawaiian pizzas. Um, I'd be interested to know how 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 they felt about it though. I can, I can only think positively or negatively when I can they, when only they think po I can only think positively. Um, <laughs> but let us know, you know, books, pets. Children, partners, uh, you can tweet us at the TLS, at Stigable, at Thea underscore Lenarduzzi, or email me at stig.able at the-tls.co.uk. Get subscribing to the TLS this week. Use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. The best price anywhere on the internet. Six issues for £5 or $5. Coming up on this week's show, are we living through the rise of the political strongman? It feels like it at the moment, or that phrase may itself just be a euphemism. David Bromwich will cast his eyes far and wide. How much did the ancients dream about sex? A question we've all asked at some point. Happily, Edith Hall is here to answer it. And what art do you consume in lockdown? We asked a bunch of TLS contributors and were surprised by the answers. Our own lockdown guru of the arts, northern songstress Lucy Dallas, will talk us through them. I'm now sitting here in the corner of a living room surrounded by the clutter of a house from which three children and two adults have scarcely left in two months. A house that is never empty, is never clean and tidy, is my contribution to the new proverbs of the coronavirus period. But in any event, on my walls at the moment, I have Edward Hopper prints, which feel timely and relevant. A contemplative woman socially distancing in an automat, a couple seen through a window, immured together, lost in thought, an empty road bleached white by the sun. 
This week, we've asked contributors to write about the art to which they're currently turning, given that the museums and galleries remain closed. We expected accounts of virtual tours through famously august institutions, perhaps settling on a pixel-perfect reproduction of a treasured image on a screen. But that didn't happen. Chris Krauss spoke for many when she said, because I don't like being online and looking at screens any more than I have to, I missed it all. The virtual exhibitions, the online openings, the Zoom symposiums. She's ventured outside instead, despite the restrictions, and replaced art viewing with urban observation, including following the trail of the historic staircases of Los Angeles. Others have discovered solace inside. Alicia Stallings is drawn to the paintings on her walls. At a time before screens, paintings were the screens. Windows on the country to fact or alternate universes. Other landscapes, other weather. Paintings also last. And that may remind us that our situation is not immutable. The countryside awaits. This too shall pass. Very wise words. So how do we consume art in a time of viral contagion? Lucy Dallas has also commissioned a piece from the head of the Barbican, Nicholas Kenyon, who has to deal with that as a pressing existential issue. She's here with Thea and me now. Lucy, hello. How are you doing? Very good. Uh, now, before we talk about all those things, I was interested because we asked all these people to talk about the visual art they've looked at um, and they've all picked things in their house or on their streets. Have either of you done a virtual exhibition in the, the 10 weeks we've, we've not been allowed to do actual exhibitions? I have a little bit, but that's a bit of a cheat because I would have had to do it for work anyway. So I've done it to check things, you know, or look at paintings that people are talking about and I've enjoyed that, but I haven't really done it outside that, I have to say. No, I have to admit that I haven't either. I think it's taken these 10 weeks for me to get to a place where I might now consider doing it. <laughs> Up till now, I've sort of just been flailing around trying to... <laughs> trying to keep things going in some normal way and so now things like attending a gallery virtually seems a bit more real in a way that before it didn't I, I've not done it either I'm just interested because I wonder I'm sure people are doing it and it's you know you do get a chance to to, to see some beautiful things but Chris Krauss talks about the problem with screens generally you know screens are the blight of our lives and it's hard to consume or want to consume more that's exactly right it's that sense of if a pause has been created you know against your will against the will of the world etc you you have the choice to either fight it by you know going and finding more and more different ways uh, of of pretending that things are normal by going to virtual galleries or, or whatever, or just accepting that this is something out of your control and just going back to books and trees, <laughs> if you're lucky enough to live near some uh, and that sort of thing. So that's what I've, that's what I've mostly been doing and staring at my walls a lot, the things on them, not just the walls. <laughs> that's exactly what the contributors have said, isn't it, as well? Yeah. There's, the, there's the solace of nature, which the whole world is is kind of talking about and has become, you know, almost at the forefront. But also I was struck by the fact that ev nearly everybody talked about what they've got in their house because we're all looking at our walls all the time. <laughs> were you surprised by that, Lucy? I honestly thought when we had this first discussion about it people would have sort of a painting that they love and they'd be going to the virtual gallery and they'd just be looking at it and not a single person said that they all talked about the stuff that was on their walls or the stuff that was outside their doors yeah I was I was surprised by it um but you know what Thea was saying about Chris Krause every everything is mediated at the moment so I think there is quite a genuine desire for stuff that's actually there 
and there's, and there's not mediated. And if you, I don't know, if it's a picture you know because you've gone to see it physically, might actually, uh, it might actually be a bit depressing just looking at a kind of small pixelated yeah. image of it. I mean, there are some good things about it. You know, some of the stuff that I've seen, you can look at it in great detail. But there's no doubt that it's different. What's the piece of art that most intrigued you? I'm going to start with, obviously, the uh, historic staircases of Los Angeles. Oh, so uh, good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Chris Cass got a book saying that there are historic, <laughs> historic, presumably art deco-y type things. And you could do it all from her house. You could do the historic staircase walk of Los Angeles. Uh, and that's what she did. So that felt something that was pleasantly exotic and also uh, kind of happily every day. And that's a very nice combination, I thought. Yes, she also mentioned that there was a, a sort of drive. There wasn't there like a, a, a drive by art exhibition, an outdoor one, which sounded like yeah. a brilliant idea to me as well. Um, anyone else, anything else that you liked? I really liked Luke Sant's contribution, in part because it comes with such a such an interesting story. So um, he says, every day I look at Michael McClure's 1964 poem poster, Love, Lion, Lioness, a copy of which hangs on his living room wall. He says he's been entranced by the work for decades since he was a teenager. Um, and he um, and he finally purchased a print of it anyway. What follows is a story of Michael McClure, who died on May the 7th this year at the age of 87. He was one of the very last of the beats. So, you know, he was part of the the famous Gallery 6 reading in San Francisco in 55 with Allen Ginsberg when when uh, Ginsberg first performed Howl. But McClure is best known for the ditty, the Mercedes-Benz ditty that then Janis Joplin sang some years later. But the poem itself, the poster poems, written in beast language, so it's all like gra and, and, and all of that. So that, that's the best you're going to get. And it evokes the figures of Jean Harlow anyway and William uh, H. Bonney, otherwise known as Billy the Kid. And then from there we move on to... Um, McClaw's most notorious work which this poster sort of laid the foundation for which was the play The Beard uh, and he says uh, it stages a confrontation between the two Billy the Kid and Jean Harlow beginning as a sort of duel and ending in sex for its first two years nearly every <laughs> performance ended with the arrest of the entire cast <laughs> and if we can't, and, I'm and a sucker what, for a good story <laughs> and, also, and also that's exactly what we lose when they close the theatres the, the, yeah. the, the, the chance to have Billy the Kid having sex with Jean Harlow and the cast being arrested <laughs> i love a bit of americana that's why i have edward hopper everywhere in in my house uh, what's on your walls lucy dear do you have anything particularly art worthy do you have anything on your walls are they just blank <laughs> i don't know I, lucy lucy i, lucy, I imagine there'd be a lot of books maybe a bit of bric-a-brac bric-a-brac how, bric -a -brac. Dare, you? how dare you also no books in my house dig no no books in your, no, your <laughs> what do you have go on then um, I'll tell you what that what I did, what I have understood actually about the people. I haven't got anything very particularly noteworthy on my walls, but I felt a lack of it, and um, and I never normally do this for the same reason also that Luke Sante says it that I can't afford it, so I wouldn't look for you know um, sort of art, um, but I found a thing. I think it was a. A pr an original etching or, or a first print, I can't be a complete original, but it was signed by Sonia Delaunay, uh, who was a, a kind of exciting 20th century Parisian based in Paris artist. And it's very, it's very, I really like her stuff. Mm. It's kind of abstract and it's very colourful and dynamic. And she worked in all sorts of mediums. And there was a print 
And I mean, I can't afford it at the, at the price it was, but I found myself looking at it and going, oh, yeah, that's not bad. Maybe I'll get a couple of those, <laughs> which is not my normal behaviour. Yeah. And so how did it end, did you? Well, I didn't buy it. No, I can't afford it then. <laughs> but I, but I understood the... Um, I thought I'd really like that and I'd really like to just sit and look at it. Yeah. You have to go through that that process of really, really wanting something and then years pass before you get it. We have on our walls mostly photographs. We have lots of um, photographs. And one of them is by Justin Partica, who is, I think he's British photographer, and it's reed cutters. And it was, in fact, the front cover of one of Granta magazine's um, special issues. Uh, I think it was in 2007 or 2008. It was their new nature writing issue. My husband was really struck by it. Uh, and then ever since then, every few years, we would email Justin Partica and say, like, do you have any prints? And how much do they cost now? <laughs> and then slowly, slowly after probably, well, however long it is since 2008, uh, 12 years, we worked up <laughs> the kind of the courage to just take just take the plunge and buy this photograph, which we now see every day and, and wonder how we did. It. Yeah, so you wore him down basically. Well, no, I mean the price didn't change. Sadly, we worked ourselves up. We worked ourselves up. But yeah, I mean it's all it's all really photography. In fact, Lucy, I think you probably know because you've been in my kitchen. This is by a friend called Danilo Para, and it's a photograph of two women. They're in Peru, and it looks like they are dancing with each other. And the skirt of one of them is flayed out uh, in this beautiful kind of sweeping shape and then when you look just a little bit closer you realize that they're fighting one of them is taking a colossal swing can you remember this <laughs> no i don't because <laughs> most people when they come they can't they can't but comment on it because it just looks like a dance and then it turns out it's this brutal fight and every year um i don't know whether it might be two or three times a year the neighboring villages come together to basically settle their grievances and fight and <laughs> um, no i think i was looking at your dog the whole time that's my excuse <laughs> we better we better move on before uh, lucy has to admit to her two thousand pound a week art habit acquired during lockdown <laughs> shush don't tell yeah uh, now let's talk about something it's very serious and we'll have to talk about i think more more than once in the future lucy you've commissioned a series about because we're talking about settling into the new normal the idea that things as they are now, may change and we might get back a bit, but we are staring down the barrel of a long period, you would imagine, of social distancing and therefore its impact on the various art worlds. Well, we were thinking about, there's the initial response in which, um, in, in terms of arts venues and organisations, a lot of them have done these wonderful things and they've put out a lot of performance performances, streamed a lot of things, there are things for people to watch and listen to and read, but they're all free. So that was a way of of uh, of people keeping connected. But but uh, we were thinking about how what it will be like in the future, and that we would like to hear from the people who are producing the art, directing the art, uh, curating it, managing it, all that sort of thing. The practitioners. Um, so our first, the piece we've kicked off with is from Nicholas Kenyon, who's a director of the Barbican Centre in London. And we started with him, uh, I mean, not least because he's been writing for us brilliantly about music for years. He's a very valued contributor. And the Barbican is a large international multidisciplinary centre, which 
is presumably having the problem everyone else is having, you know, uh, sort of times 10. And so it was, so it was a question, the question that I'm asking people is, what do you think it will look like? What would you like it to look like? Are there productive things that might come out of it? And is there anything that surprised you about the response or, um, you know, the lockdown itself, but people's thoughts and, and sort of rather practical ideas as well? And the, the answer, and Nicholas Kenyon doesn't make this answer, but the answer can't simply be watch it online. You know, come, we'll, we'll do a new exhibition and you'll come to it online. Because as we've already discussed today, that is a channel and it's probably becoming a more valued channel and all of that. But that can't be the solution, can it? Well, no, and, and, and that's what, and he says this in his piece. That, so he mentions all this wonderful stuff that's been streamed by theatres and galleries and, and music venues and all of that. But that's, that's not, that won't replace their traditional ways of making money, basically. Um, and, and it can't really be expected to. And what he's, he says in, in this piece, initially, the response might be to, to think, oh, we'll get a vaccine and then it will all go back to business as usual. But he says that that's not going to be the answer. Um, he, he thinks what will happen is that it will accelerate things that were already happening, which is what we've seen in the working world, I think, you know, the way suddenly everybody can work from home when we didn't think we could. Yeah. Um, and he says that the, the role of technology was, was becoming increasingly vital for the arts anyway, but it's, it's, it's embedded within the artwork. It's not just that you do the artwork and then you stream it. Um, so the, the example he gives is a production by um, Complicite called The Encounter. With, it was a one-man show, actually, um, but it's got a lot of audio narration in it, which is integral to the... There's an actor there and you've got to watch and see the actor, but you've also got to listen to the stories that are happening on the headphones. And it's been used for art exhibitions and all sorts of things. But yes, he says, so the technology, you can't just stream things. That's not what it is. And what do we think is that in the most, what's the most precarious art form? Is it theatre? I mean, maybe galleries, you think you can organise them, you know, so they become smaller. One thing that Nicholas Kenyon said, which I think is interesting, but isn't an economic argument. It's an, it's an aesthetic and cultural one, which is things need to get smaller. You're more attuned to your local community. Presumably you have fewer people attending. You have uh, more involved experiences, but that can't come at the cost of accessibility because that's one of the problems that elite art historically has had anyway, isn't it? Yeah, but I think, but I think that, all, I mean, it is, yes, he says it has to be a sort of more humane approach and that you start where you are. You know, you're very much embedded in your place. That might help the economy of it. Um, but... In terms of which ones are, are most at risk, I was thinking about this. I mean, I think live music, um, I think almost maybe anything that's not seated, even seated venues, you could, you know, you could potentially keep distance between people, but all gigs seem to me to be greatly at threat and also big theatre productions. So I can see how you could manage a smaller one, but musicals, you know, the, the really big West End shows, and weirdly, that gigs was uh, gigs were the answer to the economic changes caused by streaming, weren't they? That bands couldn't make any money off uh, Spotify, so they did tours and they made money from live. But if they're not going to make money from streaming because the streamers they they own everything and they they pay such nothing, and they can't make it from live music because they can't get people in a room together. There's a that's a fundamental problem to 
basically popular music, isn't it? I mean, it did seem to be. Yeah, I mean, you 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 know, you could, obviously you can record it and put it out, but but still that question remains. If you can't go on tour, and also Nick Nick Kenyon was saying this in his piece, it's not just musicians who go on tour. Theatre troops go on tour, dance troops go on tour, shows, you know, art shows go, go around internationally. Stand-up comedians. I mean, stand-up comedians, they can all do podcasts, and but it's hard to make a lot of money from that. You know, um, they will tour for a year, for four months of the year, and, and they'd make all their money that way, wouldn't they? Yeah, and, and that that's that falls under gigs in a way. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I mean, stuff yeah. that's... Um, yeah, that, that's a bit less formal, I suppose. But I, I don't, we don't know what the economics are yet. Even the big venues, if you fill them by a third, that might not be economically viable. I mean, and also Nick Kenyon says what, it, what it's going to need is a sort of um, a whole different system of support and a sort of um, ecology of, of how the arts organisations can continue. But it will also have to be recognised that they are central to all sorts of things, you know, our well-being, our resilience, creativity, as well as, you know, making lots of money, which I think traditionally they do. Well, they do. But the problem is, that is the answer, therefore, that government subsidises arts to quite a considerable extent in this country, historically, not, a, not, not to an outrageous extent, but to a certain extent. Are we saying that for the next two years, we should all expect and demand that government subsidises art more? I think we'll have to see what happens. I mean, I think we, we subsidise it a lot less than some of our European neighbours, for instance, yeah. um, already, even. But we'll have to see what happens. That's interesting. And just finally, if uh, we had Nicholson Baker's technology, the Fomata, and could just pause everything for 24 hours, Lucy, and there'd be no coronavirus, and you could go to one art event one medium of art happily as it was before coronavirus what would you go to you know cinema theater gallery gig i think i would go to theater or a musical tell you what i'd do i'd get get in to see hamilton which i haven't managed to do yet (laughs) (laughs) to be honest i think i might do the same thing what would you would you go is there would you go to this would you do what would you do i would in the afternoon (laughs) in the afternoon i would go to the photographer's gallery in uh in soho because i love it it's i think it's four floors and they're all free and i've never not seen something interesting and sometimes quite odd um there and then I would probably go to a small overcrowded quite sweaty musical establishment but that's uh, cheating you've done two I know I know I I started early I took the afternoon yeah I said 20 minutes for the evening Uh, I'd go to a restaurant in between ideally or maybe afterwards in which case I'd get up (laughs) early and do all of them yeah Yeah, exactly Um, we should probably leave it there, otherwise uh, we'll just start feeling sad that that's just only happening in fantasy rather than uh, than, than reality. Um, oh, but do you know what? Sorry, can we end on one positive note? Go on. Um, I wonder whether now might be a, a particularly good time for people to enjoy sculpture parks, such as the Yorkshire Sculpture Park in, in just outside of Wakefield, because it's amazing and it's outside and there's plenty yeah. of space for everyone. I think it is currently closed, but I think they'll, they'll probably be changing that soon. Time for Sculpture Park now, I'm sure of it. And there's like James Terrell's, there's Henry Moore, there's um, Alfredo Jar, there's, I think there's a Damien Hirst thing on, if you like that sort of thing. And it's dog friendly. Oh, but... I suppose, yes, yeah, well, sculpt- <laughs> sculptures and street art. Well, if we have to rely on the British weather to make sure we can continue to, to consume art safely and happily, then what could possibly go wrong? Thank God for umbrellas. Yeah. <laughs> Lucy, lovely to speak to you. Thank you. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Tell a dream, lose a reader, said Henry James, who, as you know, is a guiding light of this podcast. But is it not interesting to learn about the dreams of the ancients? Well, we can now do that thanks to a new translation of Artemidorus's treatise called The Interpretation of Dreams, written in the second century AD, now translated by Martin Hammond. Edith Hall has written about it and a book by Peter Toneman. On the same subject, we learn that, like us, people in the past dreamt about flying, birth, death and houses. For example, unlike us, I hope, they probably dreamt a bit more about crucifixion and castration and having sex with Artemis. Sex is inevitably a key feature of the book. Sex with older men, younger men, corpses and mothers. Artemidorus was an, indeed an influence on Freud in that respect, as he was on Foucault too. What can we learn from all this? Edith Hall is here to tell us. Edith, hello. Hi. Um, Right, let's start at the, the beginning, I suppose. Uh, who was Artemidorus and why did he write this book? Artemidorus was a professional dream interpreter who um, lived and worked in the uh, second century of our era, in, uh, he, based in what's now Western Turkey, which was then the Greek east of the Roman Empire. He was one of uh, a very long-standing profession. There'd been professional dream interpreters uh, back in Homer's time, you know, for, for, for a thousand years. But he is the author of a, a very substantial dream interpretation manual, and it is the only surviving one of its kind. There were probably hundreds of such books in the oh. ancient world. And was it, was it a manual that he was writing intended for other professionals like himself, or was it to give to members of the public so that they could sort of interpret their own dreams? That's actually an excellent question, and I suspect that the answer is, is both. Um, he addresses part of it to his own son, who's a trainee <laughs> um, dream interpreter, because professions tended to run in families. But he often talks as though he's talking to a whole 
community or professionals, like how to deal with a particular kind of dream presents itself a particular kind of customer. I think he very genuinely, and that's one of the marvelous things about these two new books, because they really get this over, I think he genuinely believed that what he was doing was socially and psychologically extremely useful. It's the seriousness and professionalism and conscientiousness that he, he takes this with. And in fact, he regularly re re rebukes, you know, what he regards as quack dream interpreters who rip people off and actually don't know what they're talking about. He, he does believe in, in this science. Um, so he creates a manual where you can actually, if you read it from beginning to end, that you can learn an awful lot about the general theory and practice. It would be a very good way to start, but it's also sort of um, organised around topics so that, you know, egg dreams are all in one section. So if a client comes Finally. in, a, yeah, a patient comes in with, with an egg dream, you, you can quite soon find it in, in what would have been a papyrus roll, of course. So there must have been special markings and so on to, to enable you to, to find your way around it very easily. And what's so great about this new translation is that for the first time it's been properly indexed, which means that a modern user, including a sort of general public person, if they've got their hands on it, can um, simply look up, you know, boiled eggs or, um, <laughs> <laughs> or mice or um, feet it's, or it's, stars. It's, it's... Is an egg an actual thing, Edith? Are you, I mean, because we'll, we'll believe anything you tell us. So is an, egg, is an egg dream an actual thing in the ancient world? It totally is an actual thing in the ancient world. And actually, it's, um, it's um, attested outside of Artemidorus. We know a lot about ancient dreams from other sources. Other writers t would tell you about an individual dream they'd had or someone else. But this is the only compendious collection analysing all the sort of typical dreams as a body. Eggs feature an awful lot of the things that we would you know us post-Freudians expect people would dream about I mean not cigars but you know lots of cigar symbols <laughs> an awful lot of phallic <laughs> symbols flying giving birth swimming uh, having sex um, defecating you know all, the, all these sort of very basic animal type uh, bodily procedures are, are very very well evidenced in the book so are actually things that Freud was fascinated by like verbal puns and allegories and even number games so certain types of dreams seem to be universal to us and to the greeks living under the roman empire in the second century ce however quite a lot of the other ones have got all sorts of detail in them you know the equivalent of the cigars that that, that were available in our culture that, that are unfamiliar to us so we're much less likely to have a dream about a grinding stone pounding flour we might be more likely to dream about a flour factory that kind of thing the sourdough starter crowd i imagine are constantly uh, dreaming about that is there is there a th is there a theory here either? i mean is there a theory that can be that we can assess that, oh, that was a certain way of thinking about dreams that's been subsequently disproved and discredited. Or... Very definitely. And it's, um, it, it, he lays it out with great precision. He's highly intelligent, great seriousness. All the ancients thought that dreams were about the future. That, that's not the, the first principle. It's, it's a form of divination. So all this Freudian idea that it's about libidinal urges or about your childhood, you know, uh, repressed unconscious. Um, Absolutely not. This is about what's going to happen in the future. So it's regarded as an absolutely invaluable source of information on that. And who, who, who were his clients? Oh, an amazing variety. And that's the reason I first got into it was actually writing about ancient slavery. 
and getting um and i'm very pleased that the books mentioned my, my piece on ancient slavery oh, very good good to hear because i um um i've always been so frustrated by the fact that we cannot get into the minds of ancient slaves they hardly ever got to speak for themselves so we're constantly having to read representations of them by their masters right what's extraordinary about this book is that he's clearly got loads and loads and loads of really lower class and even unfree uh, customers so um think about living in quite a sizable city in a very luxurious part of of, of, of greek asia minor um i don't think he had slave customers from the, far, uh, the mines or, the, or out in, in, in the awful conditions, chain gangs on the, on, on, in the fields, but domestic servants often had incomes from all kinds of different sources. They were given for pocket money. So they would go with their dreams to him, but so would very, very, you know, he has customers of all kinds. He had slaves, um, especially domestic slaves who had some kind of income and independence. He had gladiators and entertainers um, um, who tended to be itinerant. And I think itinerant people who go around the different festivals performing, uh, he would actually set up a, a tent himself. He would follow the festival circuit. So, because, that's where people like you might go to to, to, to Madame Gypsy Ro Joe's Rose Lee at, at a modern fairground. You know, you might go have your dream read in the context of an Olympic Games or something like that. Um, but he's also got very top people, city magistrates, judges, and an awful lot of women. And it's very interesting in terms of the insights into to the ancient female uh, mind as well. And um, it's interesting that does have a, a, a wide variety of clients there. Um, and you'd think that because he because this is about divining the future, you'd think almost it would be a one size fits all, like the future is, is the future, but he does sort of tailor it depending on, on the person's class and predicament, doesn't he? And that's one of the things I admire most about it. He has this very sensibly relativist sense of, of human happiness, that, that, that different symbols are going to mean different things in different minds and even different ethnicities. He says, for example, that we don't dream about tattoos because we don't use tattoos, but the Thracians of the Balkans often dream about tattoos because they have tattoos, okay? So there's a huge insistence on finding out as much during the consultation as you possibly can about, uh, like a doctor, like a really good psychological doctor about the general habits of life, conditions, fears, family situation, way of making a living, all that kind of thing. So I get the sense that one of these consultations, even if the dream, the prediction was completely subsequently frozen, Reverend to be false, that he thought he was doing the clients good with that half an hour talking about them. So he wasn't a con man. He, wa he wasn't a con man. He wasn't. And part of the point of the book is to, is, is to uh, make this as a very, very respectable professional science that, that, that takes application and learning. And he says you also just get better and better the more you do. You've got to take the basic theories, which include reading allegorically so what might a mouse mean you know what, what might that symbolize you, you have got a, a theory that can be transmitted but it is absolutely useless without his word for experience which is pay we get it's connected with our empirical right you you get the information over the course of your career and he is now a mature dream interpreter with a grown-up son who has acquired so much pay so much experience that uh, he feels it incumbent upon himself to to put it down now he probably did also make quite a lot of money he probably sold this um uh, papyrus he'd written to uh, uh, an ancient bookseller they were uh, who would have many many copies made 
and just as almanacs and self-help manuals today are some of the boomiest bits of, of uh, you know, the, the publishing industry, it will have sold well. He will probably have made money out of it as well. But I genuinely get the sense that he, he was believed what he was doing was good and useful and he was proud of his expertise and wanted to share it. Is this a big deal, this new translation, Edith? Because um, it sounds to me that, the, that it's, it's accessible and it might put this book in, a, in as part of the canon, the classical canon, where it deserves to be. Absolutely, it's brilliant. There have been translations before, not very many. They are either eye-wateringly expensive, <laughs> I mean, we're talking over three figures, you know, or really rather shoddy and unreliable and not, not by people who knew their imperial Greek prose style very well, or both, right? I'm not going to name any names. This now means that you can, you can, you can buy one for not much more than an hour's minimum wage um, in a paperback form with the most um, impeccable translation. And it's, a, you know, you, you also get Peter Toneman who doesn't translate it, but you get his extraordinarily insightful um, discussion and notes and introduction and so on. So it's actually a wonderful gift. You know, I would give, th- I would give this to a, a, um, everybody's interested in their dreams. <laughs> I would give this to a, a bright 16 year old teenager as an introduction to ancient Greece and Rome. I'd like a copy. Yeah, I'd like a it copy. Sounds, it sounds great. Yeah, it sounds uh, like the book that you should have on your bedside table or at least somewhere on a shelf. It is, but it's part of a whole range of... Um, it, this is partly to do with this, the way the subject is developing. So we used to have, you know, very elite literature. Um, that was what I was trained in, you know, Greek tragedy and epic. And you had um, elite historians like Livy and Thucydides. There was this extraordinary amount of technical and popular sort of instructional didactic manuals in the ancient world, of which we've got quite a few on things like farming and fishing as well. And these, at last, as much more closely involved with the real lives of ordinary, inverted commas, people in the ancient world, are getting serious attention. Uh, and that, that's just a historical development that's come about with, with, with developments in um, acad- other academic fields like sort of new materialism, and um, sort of soft Marxism interest in, in, in bottom-up perspectives. Um, I've been very much a, you know, an advocate of this. That, that, that's why I always knew about these strange, used to be described as you know, tacky, vulgar kinds of aspects of the ancient world. I've been interested in them since I was an undergraduate, but they have been very, very hard for me to share with uh, the world because nobody done a decent and affordable translation. And now they have. Yes. Well, that's good to uh, Just finally, we're going to leave it there. Favourite dream symbol that's come out of this? Anything that, that's lingered in your mind as you've, you've re-read, re-read Artemidorus? Um, I did about favourite, but um, I like the one with the man who, slave, who dreamt he had three penises. <laughs> um, and Artemidorus was thrilled. This, he correctly, he tells us with pride, um, predicted that that meant that he would be... Uh, liberated and take the three names that he would have to take as a, as a Roman citizen. Ah, they so each pain, is- yeah, you have, you know, the three, the, the triple. And Artemidorus is immensely proud of this. So everybody out there who's miserable or suffering or in any kind of a, oppressive situation, just try and dream you've got lots of penises, I suppose. And finally, practical advice on this podcast, Edith, if you want to change your lot in life, dream about having lots of penises. Exactly.
That's the take home uh, message. There's got to be one. Edith, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. And you. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Oh, thank you. <laughs> In 2017, cited by David Bromwich in his study of the rise of strongman politics in this week's TLS, revealed that among a group of European millennials asked to list their top five most important social values, less than one third listed democracy. A similar non-attachment to the political system of constitutional democracy that most of us in the West have grown up in, characterised the attitudes of the Americans surveyed the year before. Of all US government institutions, only the armed forces and the police were trusted by the majority. One wonders what such a survey would find today. In short, belief in the value of a mixed constitutional system, a democracy with checks and limitations on executive power, has, says Bromwich, ceased to be a common intuition among the citizenry of the West. And this should not come as a surprise. Despotism is neither more nor less natural than democracy. David Bromwich should know. He has reviewed eight books on the topic for this week's piece alone, and he joins us on the line from America now to tell us more. Hello, David. Hello. Um, of course, what I want to ask you is what the hell happened, but I think I probably need to be a little bit more specific. <laughs> um, there was there was a time when the tide of democracy seemed irreversible, but now it seems as though democracy is in fact in regression, or if we're lucky, that it exists as part of some kind of waxing and waning cycle. Uh, I mean, that's not an uncontroversial statement to, to begin with, though, so I wonder if you might paint a more detailed picture of, of the moment in which we find ourselves now. One way to frame it is to recognize again that uh, democracy had a beginning, as we understand it in modern, roughly speaking, Western terms, that is to say, as encompassing the transatlantic commercial democracies and some other countries that these habits and systems spread to. Um, it's really a creation of the very late 18th century in theory and of the 19th century in practice. And grave suspicions uh, about it were shared by, <laughs> by writers like Tocqueville, Mill, uh, Dicey, uh, Leckie, many who would have been uh, cited as you know, prime members of the Liberal Party in Europe. And yet uh, the, the sense was, uh, can enough people in a mass suffrage democracy understand the workings of it to be the popular base for a government that is both prudent uh, and capable of sustaining itself. And I think it's the victory of the Allies uh, in the Second World War that left the feeling, well, this, this is here to stay, and it is the best of the possible systems here to stay because the alternatives are fascism and communism. And then the fall of, let's say, world communism in 1989, 90, 91, with the breakup of the Soviet empire, left an extraordinary um, glow of optimism, uh, which, you know, are st st still very audible in the speeches of Tony Blair uh, and Bill Clinton, and to some extent, even Barack Obama. Uh, then a new enemy appears on the horizon, radical Islam, as defined by Bush, Cheney, Blair, etc. And it's as if that's the new distraction, but democracy still somehow uh, can be trusted to spread because there's some internal virtue of it. That's you know like a dormitive virtue, the virtue that is there waiting to be tapped. 
but it's, it's a political system. It's a system of uh, having a constitution, having regular elections, um, branches of government uh, separate from each other and able to check and limit each other. It's complex, it requires patience, and it also requires political talent in leadership that appears with a fair regularity. And this has been one thing I think a lot of people would say missing uh, in the US government for the last generation and a half or so. Waning confidence is partly due to that. It's partly due to the sense people have correctly. Money, and it's transnational money now, really runs the world and is more important than mere political power, that the people who wield power are anyway in the hands of the people who have a lot of money. So in 2016, November 2016, you had not a majority, but the necessar a necessary electoral majority uh, turning over power to somebody they took to be a very rich man who therefore knew the tricks of the rich and could run the country as well as anyone. But how much of that is just froth, David? Because the, the characteristics you talk about there regular elections where, where the public are given an option and they, they, they exercise their right in that. They're still there in many systems, the US and the UK. And is there a certain amount of hand-wringing on the sort of failure of democracy or the waning of democracy, whereas actually that just translates as we think we've got a particularly bad bunch of people to choose from at the moment, which is a slightly different point, isn't it? Yeah, and that, that difference is very apparent in the way American voters, at least in my experience of seeing them on TV and talking to them myself, the way they will speak about their dissatisfaction. Um, it, it, it is a huge animosity, hatred, distrust of the other side, uh, more than considered thoughts about the system as a whole that seems to be driving the dissatisfaction. But when it goes from hatred of or distrust of uh, a leader like Obama because he is seen to be a renewal of the welfare state, seen to be too globalist, too international, and seen to be too inexperienced, too distrust of Donald Trump uh, for a whole variety of reasons, the most obvious being that he is not a competent politician and hardly knows what the job of the presidency entails. Also his manners. Um, he talks and acts like a reality TV brute rather than the polite leader of the country. But the distrust extends beyond that to suspicions that he is in cahoots with the Russians or in cahoots with somebody else, suspicions that haven't proved out at all. And yet this alternation of you know, temporary trust in one person, driven mainly by huge distrust of the other side, and then a changing of sides, um, that seems to be a pattern now. So. I don't think it amounts to people saying to themselves, um, democracy has failed, let's try something else. But when this pattern goes on for a generation or so, it does seem to me plausible to fear uh, that the habits of democracy are being eroded or lost. In fact, one of the books that sort of tells us a great deal about about the current predicament is is one that you you mentioned by C. Wright Mills, The Power of Elite, he wrote in 1956. Uh, and that sort of shows how how the culture itself is to is responsible for the hands in which we find ourselves, the, you know, who's, who's holding the power now. Yes, M Mills was writing uh, in, the, in the middle of the Eisenhower era, and he suggested that power didn't reside in the hands of political 
office holders or even some combination of political office holders and an almost hereditary oligarchy. Um, he, he saw instead uh, elites coalescing in overlapping areas, the military, the entertainment world, politicians, um, and the, among them, a kind of mixture that made people very uncertain where power actually resided. And in any case, American government being entrusted to an elite of bureaucrats, uh, what we now call the deep state, um, who are responsible to, it couldn't exactly uh, be said what. So Mills is talking there about the difficulty of determining who holds the levers of power anymore when politics as such doesn't seem in command. And that was a perception he had already when we elected this general, General Eisenhower, who had no real interest in politics other than being elected president because it was logically the last line on his vita in between being supreme commander of allied forces uh, at the end of the Second World War and uh, being elected president, he had been uh, president of Columbia University. Both parties wanted him to run. So, I mean, that called into question also the definition, the characteristics of the two parties, the party system. Harry Truman told Eisenhower in 1948 that if he wanted to run then, Truman didn't care to run again. So you have this and then, you know, Reagan, movie star gets elected, Obama, extraordinarily glamorous, well-spoken, and extraordinarily unformed politician gets elected. Um, and now you have this showman, Donald Trump, uh, who again is interested in uh, perpetuating his private fortune and interested in his popularity as a media figure, but really shuffles and reshuffles his cabinet in a way that creates instability and it's the instability that is the only constant thing in his administration. I mean, it's the other point to throw into this now as in, in the last week, really, that is it a moment when all institutions will be have to re be structurally examined? You know, we see in America now talking about how the police should be structured, should be funded, should even have be exist in a civil society. Um, this democratic system that's been around for a long time, which seems to favour certain types of people, which seems to favour certain interests over the interests of others. Do you feel, David, we're getting to a point where these type of things will be examined intrinsically in order to create change? Or is this just another period where we look into ourselves and do nothing? Well, I think something will come of these demonstrations and of uh, self-examination and the actual effects of the pandemic. We don't know what they are or what affects the mass gatherings uh, of people demonstrating uh, against the killing of George Floyd will have on, on the rise or fall of the pandemic in the US. And I do agree that um, that poll which said the police is one of the two institutions trusted by most Americans uh, may have to subtract one from that and say it's just the armed forces. But one of the things that have appalled onlookers who have been tracking this until now is the militarized uh, character of American police forces. Um, a great many police forces, including that of Minneapolis, uh, where George Floyd was killed, received training from uh, the Israeli Defense Forces using tactics comparable to those used on Palestinians. I mean that's that's extraordinary itself that you would go to a you would go to a foreign country in a very different situation than the U.S. to get training in how to deal with 
street criminals and so on. You know, beyond that, uh, th there is the matter of order uh, being so extravagantly connected with arms in the United States and that the domestic police uh, look so much like a military police now. So, I mean, I think that's going to be subject to re-examination at least. By the way, those arms, um, the heavy machinery, the tanks in some cases, were sold as army surplus at a discount to uh, police forces by the administration of Barack Obama and Eric Holder. I mean, so it just shows how the, the habit of these connections seeps into government with, without any real sense of how it affects constitutional safety, to call it that, and constitutional soundness. One of the books that you review is by Amos uh, Barshad, No One Man Should Have All That Power. And that one seems like a particularly interesting one because it reminds us that it's not just all about one figure, one man, usually, around pulling the strings and, and, and again, holding the power and all of that sort of thing. But it's about a team of people uh, and quite often a Rasputin-like figure in, in Donald Trump's case, Sam Nunberg, the Dominic Cummings to our Boris Johnson, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that, that book by Barshad, it's, it's very readable and some of those profiles are enjoyable, but I didn't find his, I'll call it gimmick, of centering all this on Rasputin and saying there are Rasputin-like figures everywhere. I didn't find that convincing. And one reason why I'm guessing Sam Nunberg will be a name unfamiliar to most yeah. of your listeners is that he quickly disappeared. Steve Bannon has disappeared less quickly because he's a, a cleverer, more mm -hmm. articulate, a more resourceful sort of a propagandist and nationalist. There have been several others close to Trump, but he has uh, not much patience for reading, for listening, for staying with any train of thought or any, any political uh, advisor. It seems completely done on the basis of personality and total agreement. And right now, for example, uh, the people who seem close to him and likely to stay are Mike Pompeo, his uh, Secretary of State, and, and William Barr, his uh, uh, Attorney General, who's actually done more to keep Trump in office than, than anybody or anything else has done. But uh, Trump turns people out very fast, and that's one of the ways he, he is hard to capture. And yet his, his own mind works on this procedure erratically. And just finally, David, then the other constitutional point, we'll have to leave it on this point, is does, does a strong man like Donald Trump, does he relinquish power if there's a democratic mandate that asks him to leave? That's the, the specter that seems to haunt the discussions of what's going to happen over the next few months and taking us to November in, in the US. That if you are a strong man, if you're based on direct democracy through social media and populism, if it's a tight election, do you refuse to relinquish power? Uh, that is a, a very live anxiety concerning Donald Trump because he called into question the results even of the last election, which put him into office. He didn't believe that he'd lost by three million votes. He thought most of the votes, uh, a great many of the votes in that margin were falsely cast. He, he actually set up a commission, which was then quickly disbanded to investigate the election. So he has encouraged his followers to distrust elections. And unfortunately, the Democratic Party has added to that distrust by suggesting that a Republican victory is likely to have been engineered by Vladimir Putin. That name comes up again and again as a sort of boogeyman on the Democratic side, even though evidence for it 
is very weak, very doubtful. But the distrust of results of elections is the sort of thing that plays into Trump's hands. And if he, if he decides that he's lost by too small a margin to matter or that he wants to contest an election, something that's never happened in this country, you know, will be in a situation without precedent. And I, I, I don't think anyone can prophesy what would come of that. Well, on that um, sadly plausible note, David, we had better leave it there. David Boric, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good to talk to you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Lucy Dallas, Edith Hall and David Bromwich. Please do make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. This issue is an absolute corker. We've got Maygray and Napoleon, not together. Lockdown life in Colombia and Turkey, the history of the Clary Hue and much more. And our friend Ros Deneen writes beautifully about family perspective after getting coronavirus. Next week, we'll talk about travel, given that talking about it is all we can do. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.